Please open in your copy of the scriptures to the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy and chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the last chapter, and we're working our way through that last chapter. Here, the Apostle Paul lists several different topics that are essential for the church to be built up on. The church sits and is built up on the foundation, the teachings of the apostles. And this is part of those teachings. Last week we saw the importance of a foundation in which the truth is spoken. It seems to be common sense, but it is so easy to take the word of God and make it mean something else. It's not hard at all. If you try, make some effort, you might even sound convincing. However, our duty is to look at the scriptures clearly. We keep our finger in the text, consider the context, and then make our understanding clear. And Paul said it is imperative that the church of God teach the truth. Teach the truth, all of the truth, not just part of the truth, and stand on that truth. In other words, insist on it. You know, we do need to be a people of conviction. However, Christians, you, we need to be kind and con convicted. We need convictional kindness. Uh, sometimes we evangelicals are just angry people. We watch too much Fox News. <laughs> We're just angry. The world's coming to an end. You know, they're right. The world is coming to an end in due time. God knows when. I'm not saying don't watch. I'm saying don't become angry. Be people of conviction, but be kind in your conviction as you give an understanding for why you believe what you believe. Speak the truth always. Speak the truth in love. Well, as we move on to verse 6, it reads this way. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness and contentment is great gain. Last week, we saw a vaccination against the plague of false teaching. And today, we continue to see what Paul instructs in regards to how to avoid the pitfall of being malcontent or discontent. He says here that if you join godliness with contentment, you're going to gain greatly. Now, some of us try godliness, but we're not content, and so there's very little gain. And some of us try to be content, but there's no godliness, and there's no gain. Here, Paul puts the two together. Godliness and contentment will win you a great deal. People in general, I think, are simply infatuated with more and with new. That seems to be our culture. Along with change, more, new, and change, because we tend to lack a sense of satisfaction. Contentment seems to always be just beyond our reach, doesn't it? I'm almost content. I would be content if, that if never goes away. It's interesting how this iPhone is a great phone until the next generation comes out, right? All of a sudden, you're like, oh, 
that's a better camera. <laughs> Apparently, this is true not just of people in general, but of Christians in specifically. Um, it's not always that we want more. It's not that we always want more, but it's that we are simply not satisfied with what we have. And in a capitalist society, uh, this actually works to move the economy forward. The economy chugs along when we buy those things we need, but the economy surges forward when we buy everything we want beyond our necessities. So discontentment serves capitalism well. And I do believe the scriptures have a, a, an emphasis on capitalism as being a good system of, uh, of economy. But uh, capitalism also has its downfalls, and this is one of them. It does breed a sense of discontentment. Discontentment is at the essence of advertisement. Advertisement works best when it can pinch and nip at your sense of contentment so that your contentment becomes discontentment. And that's why you feel so bad when you come home from the mall. It's not because there's so much walking. It's because you think, I don't have much. Buying beyond what you absolutely need is not wrong. Um, it's not even necessarily bad. Uh, in fact, I think buying beyond what you absolutely need is one of those pleasures of life which God blesses us with. Uh, in Israel, uh, he gave them milk and honey. Milk and honey. Those essentials and pleasures of life. And he does likewise for us, my friend. So please, uh, when we're talking here about discontentment or contentment, it's not about how much you own. That's not what we're getting at here. But I can't say that what you own will never bring you contentment. It'll bring you pleasure. It may bring you ease. But it's never going to satisfy you. Uh, and the matter of discontentment is actually a, a very serious one. Again, a large part of the reason we are infatuated with change is due to the fact that we experience too much discontentment. Well, what I want to do this morning is walk through that one singular verse. We'll touch on the others as well, up through verse 10. But I want to really emphasize verse 6. And what I'm going to do is... Uh, use, by and large, some points made in this book. It's about 10 years old, written by Dr. Michael Horton. It's called Ordinary. And it's still available for you to purchase, Ordinary. It's a book that I enjoyed very much so, very insightful, and it was written about 10 years ago to contrast what Platt wrote in terms of Radical. Maybe some of you remember that book. Um, radical was good, Ordinary is way beyond just good. And I would recommend it to you. And so I'll be leaning on what Horton has to say in regards to contentment as we look more specifically at this one singular verse. And some of you are saying, how can you take 30 minutes just to explain one singular verse? Well, there's so much to be said in these words here, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So let's talk a little bit about contentment. Now, sometimes our lives resemble more an attempt to create an epic movie in which we are the stars than creating a scenario where we are humble servants of God. 
and that we are living from day to day to know him and glorify him. Elihu, in Job 34, verse 4, that's Job's friend, he said this. He said, let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. Choose what is right and know among ourselves what is good. Uh, Paul says something similar in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. He says, hold on to what is good. In other words, uh, don't let go of what is good. Let go of what is bad. Let go of that. So let's hang on here to what is good. All right, contentment is good. At times we do want change because we know there needs to be some improvement in our lives. Sometimes change actually needs to happen. We need to improve our situation. We need to um, improve ourselves. Back in 1965, when my father came to America with his family, that included me, he had $20 in his pocket. That's it. Um, $20 back then bought more than it does today, but nonetheless, it was just $20. And he had, at the time, four children and a mother-in-law with him. He did not speak the language. He had no job lined up. And you could just call him foolish, baby, but we were here. And one important promise that we learned very quickly is that our new life here in this new world was going to have a new, deep struggle. There were going to be some essential changes that had to be made. And so for us, for years, life was a constant quest to change, simply to survive, to try to make the rent, eventually the mortgage, and to put food on the table so that we could live here as Americans. Change had to occur. But at times we want change, not because things are difficult or bad, but because we just can't seem to be satisfied. Uh, yes, at times we want change because it's obvious that there's an essential lacking. It's obvious that maybe there's a character trait in me that is waning, that needs to be changed. Maybe there is a godly ambition that is absent. Then I need to change. But to some degree, probably to a great degree, we want change because we are not content with what is good. So we want change. Good is not enough. I'm not saying good enough. I'm saying good is not enough. And so we want change. If that is your case, instead of looking for something new or maybe something bigger, or looking for something more, I would recommend to you that you need to pursue something that's actually going to, to sustain you. You need to look for something that's actually going to sustain you. Innovation may very well bring you pleasure. We all like pleasure. There's room for pleasure. Enjoy it. Godly pleasure. But ask yourself this question. Can that pleasure be sustained? And can that pleasure sustain me? It's a good question to ask. And we often find ourselves constantly revamping ourselves because pleasure seems to just escape us. It's here, but it flies away so quickly. How can our satisfaction, how can our contentment be sustained? A large part of the problem is that we are impatient 
with the ordinary. We don't like the ordinary. Especially in our region, in this part of the country, ordinary just is not good. We like to be cutting edge. And we're proud of it. We like what's new and shiny. Uh, ordinary maybe at one point did excite us, but not anymore. We want something more. We want something that's going to charge us with more interest or more meaning, something that's just going to give us more purpose. We don't want to grow slowly like a tree in a forest. No, we want the forest fire. We want something big, something quick, something consuming. And then we think we're going, we're going to be content. This is what I find interesting and Horton points out, is that unfortunately today, contentment is not seen as a virtue. Contentment is seen as a vice. It's not a virtue. People actually will think that you're settling if you are content. They'll think that you are cheating yourself if you are content. They'll think that you are weak, that you have no ambition if you are content. But here's the kicker. Whereas contentment is no longer a virtue, it's a vice, Everyone is looking, longing for contentment. We all want to be content. And yet we treat it with despise. Well, let's talk a little bit about what contentment is. Uh, back in the 1600s, a preacher, writer by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's still on the market as well, and you can find it on Amazon. It's a Westminster bookstore as well. You can find it there. I'd go there first. This is what Burroughs said about contentment. This is how he defines contentment. It's a great definition. It's printed in your worship folder. Christian contentment, he says, is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which submits to and delights in what God gives to you. Paul, the apostle, he wrote about contentment. It's the passage that was just read to us from Philippians chapter 4. I think Gabe did a good job after that video watching, reading uh, this passage. He writes about contentment. And when he writes about contentment, he's in prison, in a prison cell. Not getting three square meals a day. There's no gym to go work out in. Uh, there's no schooling to get his GED. Uh, there's no courtyard time where he could, you know, get a little exercise, play a few hoops. No, no, he's in jail, in a dungeon, chained, often to two different soldiers, one on his left and one on his right. Historians tell us that certain times of the year, that cell would actually be waist deep in water because it would flood. And he writes about contentment. This is what he wrote, verses 11 and 12, Philippians 4. Not that I speak from want. Wow, Really? Not that I speak from want, for I have learned 
to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In other words, I've been there. I've been rich, and I've been poor. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret, the secret, of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I have learned the secret, the necessary secret of when I am rich, and likewise, when I am poor, when I am full, and when I am hungry. Well, what is the secret? Well, look at verse 13. The secret is summed up in verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this verse here, so often quoted, you'll notice here the, 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 the context in which he quotes, he writes these words, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Often, when people quote this verse, they say, well, you know, I'm going through a really difficult time, or this is a really heavy task, or this is a real big trial. I can do anything through God who strengthens me. Perseverance is what they're getting at. But notice the context. The context here is about being content. I can do all things. In other words, I can be content. I can be satisfied through God who strengthens me. And therefore, I can persevere. Here, Paul describes that contentment happens. Contentment happens when we learn to be satisfied with God's provision. It doesn't mean you don't get a second job if you have to. It means you continue to trust the Lord. And you don't raise your face, fist at God. And you don't start swearing at people. You learn to be satisfied with God's provision. It means we learn to trust in the wisdom of God's providence. That he will see me through. It means living above our circumstances instead of under or even in, but above our circumstances. It means knowing that we belong to the mighty and sovereign God. It means that we are preoccupied, not with the good of ourselves, but with the good of others. And we're preoccupied with Christ himself in us. And we learn to be grateful even when we don't have abundance, or when we do have abundance, we learn to be grateful. You see, there is godliness. Godliness comes together with contentment. That will be a great gain to you. 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. The secret listed right here in Philippians 4 eludes most people. It does not need to elude the Christian. The secret of contentment. Contentment does not, it does not come by fulfilling all our goals. And that's what the world tells us, right? Fulfill all your goals, dream big, you can do it. You can't. We all know that if we're old enough, right? If you're young, well, I'm telling you now, you can't do everything you want or dream of. You can't be anything you want to be. That's not true. I wanted to be a basketball player. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> just want to wake you up a little. 
Contentment does not come from the acquisition of more stuff. It does not come from accolades from other people. It does not come with trophies and red carpets and pictures in a magazine. You know, contentment doesn't even, doesn't even come from travel and, and, and multiple experiences. No, 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 not at all. If you are looking for contentment in these areas, you are not going to be the star in an epic movie. No, your life is going to be a tragic comedy. Contentment begins when you begin to see your identity in Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. The vast majority of this world cannot be content. And they're going to try to tell you that you should not be content either, but don't give up. And they're going to try to tell you how you should become content, but it doesn't work. But they don't know that. You know why? Because they do not know Christ. Contentment comes... When you understand your identity in Jesus Christ, not in your experiences, not in your stuff, not in what others think of you or your accomplishment. No, no, no. Contentment happens when you learn to live above your circumstances and your identity is that you belong to the powerful and almighty sovereign God who has covenanted with you. You belong to him. And there you will see spiritual growth happening. This is the God who will make you strong when you are weak because he will be your strength. In fact, you will see his strength more so when you are weak. Contentment then will breed more contentment. It'll snowball when you understand your identity in Jesus Christ. Contentment rests in a covenant of grace. That's your identity. The identity of a Christian is that God has chosen to make with you a covenant of grace. Now, not a contract, a, a covenant. The, the church functions on this base of a covenant of grace. Again, not a contract but rather a commitment between God and his people. A commitment that's not based on merit, what you deserve, no, but rather based on grace. I don't deserve it, but God gives it to me nonetheless. A, a contract way of thinking actually chips away commitment. Contracts chip away any side, any sense of contentment, rather. It just chips away at contentment. Uh, let me put it this way. Um, marriage is a covenant. And, and let's say we turn marriage, as many people do, into a contract instead. Instead of a covenant, we say, no, it, it's a contract. That's how many people enter marriage. It's a contract. And in a contract, you have one autonomous man and one autonomous woman agree that they are going to provide a service to each other. And in order to do that, they're going to get married. You're going to do for me, and I'm going to do for you. That's the contract. In fact, initially, both of them are free, free individuals, self-owned individuals who choose to give up, to compromise some of their freedoms in order to provide a service to each other. That's a contract. For, for a mutual benefit. 
So as long as I keep up my end of the contract, things are going to be well because she'll keep up her end of the contract. But the day either one of us violates that contract, well, null and void, the contract is null and void. If you cease to benefit me, well then, I have no longer any need for this contract. And that's the way contracts work. A covenant way of thinking is completely different. Completely different. In a covenant relationship, marriage, God is the sovereign ruler. And in a covenant relationship, I actually don't own myself, and neither does she. But rather, God owns me, God owns her. We are not autonomous. Rather, we, my wife and myself, are owned by God, and we are his image bearers. We're here to reflect him. And now I am accountable to God for how I relate to him through my wife. And even with others. I don't belong to myself. And my devotion to my wife is not based on merit. It's not based on what she does for me. But rather it's based on grace. Oh yes, there's a lot of love there too. Love always helps. But it's based on grace. Because of the grace God has given to me. You see, God has covenanted with the Christian. And now I can covenant with my wife. And the grace he gives to me, I can extend to her. And she can extend to me, which she often does. You see, it's not a contract. And therefore... Just as God has yielded himself to me in his wisdom, he's yielded himself to me in his presence, he yielded to me in terms of giving me of his grace and his mercy. In fact, we count on God to give us these things, don't we? When life is a little difficult, we say, hey, Lord, where are you? Where's your mercy? Don't you see me suffering here? Lord, where's your presence? I feel like you've abandoned me. Why? Because he's covenanted with us, and therefore we expect him to be there like he said he would. Give him time. He's there. Your eyes are not seeing him, but he's there. But we expect him to be there because it's a covenant, not a contract. And so it is with marriage, but so it is with the Christian life. A covenant says this, I will persevere even when services are not rendered to me. I'm going to persevere. Even though I'm not getting what I expect to get, I will remain faithful to my God. I will forgive even though, even as I have been forgiven. Why? Because I have made this non-conditional commitment, a covenant, not a contract. And I can be faithful because Christ, who is my identity, is faithful. Big difference. It's completely foreign to the way the world thinks. And some of you have been through all that already because your marriage was a contract. But aren't you glad that God has a better way? A better way. Contentment comes when I understand that I have entered into this covenant relationship with God. And a covenant says this. I am intrinsically bound to God in ways that transcend, transcends any good or services that I need. Thus, I am loyal to him 
and he is loyal to me. We have a covenant. Not only we, me and him, but we, us, and him. A covenant. That's what the church is, a covenanted people. So my obedience to him is not based on his services to me. Well, let's see. Should I obey God today, yes or no? Well, let me see how many blessings he's given to me, and then I'll decide how faithful I'll be. No, not at all. That's not the way a covenant works. A covenant says, I am loyal no matter what God gives or doesn't give. I remain loyal. There's a particular allegiance, a loyalty between those who covenant. And that's why God says, I have, through Jesus Christ, established a new covenant in my blood, a blood covenant. He gave his life for you. He will remain loyal to you. And he calls on you through this covenant to be remain loyal to him. And that's when we see, when we see contentment, breeding, and growing, and even snowballing. My identity is that I am in him, and thus, what he brings into my life, I can be content with. Because his covenant love is not going to harm me. I could be content with what he brings into my life because of his love. He is not going to harm me. And therefore, I could be content. John chapter 15, in verse 16, it reads this way. You did not choose me, but I chose you. That's Jesus Christ speaking. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Notice here what it says. It says, I chose you. He said, I chose you. You didn't choose me. And then it says that he is going to give to you everything you need in order to accomplish his plan for your life. And you're wondering, well, what's your plan, God? Well, it's right there. Bear fruit. Bear fruit. He is giving to you everything you need in order to bear fruit. And therefore, you can be content. Psalm 24, 1 reads this way. The earth is the Lord's and the fulfillment thereof. In other words, we are not self-made. God owns all and he gives even as he pleases. And so contentment comes when we understand that what he has given to us has come according to what he wants us to have. He's given to us according to what he wants us to have. Now, we're not talking here then being complacent. I was talking about contentment with a group of politicians uh, recently, and they said, so you mean I shouldn't look for higher office? I shouldn't look to change the law? No, I'm not saying that's... That at all. That would be complacency. What I am saying is that <clears throat> contentment should not be confused with denying your needs. It doesn't say I have no needs. It's not that we are to give up improving ourselves. It is not a matter of cheating myself or settling for something less. No, this is contentment, my friends. 
it is that we do not anxiously keep searching for something else more and instead of the pursuit of Christ. That we do not continue to anxiously keep pursuing things outside of Christ. Looking to find our satisfaction in that contentment. In other words, know his will. Press to please him. Press to live for Christ. There's godliness. Know that he has an immeasurable love for you and make others, instead of yourself, make others your focal point in life. Trust his plan. That's contentment. And be grateful for what God has produced in you and be grateful for what God has given to you and thrive, thrive in what he is doing now instead of always looking over the fence and wondering, why can't I have more? Thrive in what he's blessed you with. Oh, it's not as much as so-and-so. That's right. I guess we could be positive and say, well, it's not as less as so-and-so either. But that's not the point. The point is, what has God given you? Embrace that. And be thankful for that. And find your satisfaction, your trust in the Lord, the, the, the means by which your anxiety is reduced and removed in what God is doing in you now. Be happy with what he's given to you. Now, take a look at the value of contentment. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll read there to, to verse 12. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For what we brought, I'm sorry, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of mercy is, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Godliness and contentment will do great things for you. A lack of contentment is usually the result of selfish ambition. Here we're talking about persevering, and we can actually persevere with joy. It doesn't have to be a struggle. It can be joyful. A joy-filled perseverance. It almost sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Joy-filled perseverance. And that does mean that you can be content with God's ordinary means. Um, we often want a miracle, don't we? How many times have you prayed for a miracle? Maybe you're praying for a miracle now. We often want miracles. I don't blame you. If there's things going wrong, you just want God to come and instantly change it. You want him to reverse the laws of nature and change it. I understand. And we see the awesome power of God in miracles. We're always looking for a miracle. Well, consider this, my friends. Consider that the same almighty, powerful hand of God behind the miracle is the same mighty hand behind the normal, daily, 
ordinary laws of nature and laws of spiritual growth. It's the same God is behind that. He created both. He creates the miracles, but he also creates the ordinary means of getting you to where you need to be. He creates miracles, and he creates the ordinary means. And here is the ordinary means. In the simplest version I could give to you, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The simplest means by which God can grow you and bring contentment to you. It is so simple, some of you are not going to believe it and not want to put it into practice. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it's true. Acts 2.42, there we're told that the people of God came together and they sat under the teachings of the apostles. That's the Bible. And they came together and they practiced the Lord's Supper and Baptism. The ordinances or the sacraments. They practiced the Lord's Supper and baptism. And they worshiped together. And they prayed together. And they fellowshiped together. That's the ordinary means. The ordinary means. God is equally in the ordinary means, Acts 2.42, as he is in the miracles we beg God for so often. Both are equally potent. There is a difference. One is immediate, and the other one requires time and discipline. But let me illustrate my point this way. Again, much of this you'll find in Horton's book, and I do recommend it. When you pray for your daily bread, the Lord's Prayer, Give us this day our daily bread. Do you sit there and expect the bread to boom, boom, white loaf? Maybe you like multi-grain, boom. No, of course not. That would be a miracle. Give us this day our daily bread means that you're praying, Lord, raise up farmers who will grow wheat. And Lord, then provide bakers who will take that wheat and turn it into bread. And then that baker will hire a driver who will then take it to the supermarket. And the supervisor at the supermarket will put it on a shelf. And at just at the right time, he will open up the store so that you could go and purchase it. And you'll take it to the counter. And there's going to be this gum-chewing high school girl who's going to mumble. And you're going to be able to buy it. Of course, he's also going to provide an employer who's going to pay you so that you can actually purchase the bread. Ordinary means. Ordinary means. Give us this day our daily bread. 2 Timothy 1.13 reads this way, and I'll close here. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith, and love that are Christ Jesus. Follow the pattern. What is this pattern? This pattern is the ordinary, common, regular, normal ways to grow in Christ. My friends, are you longing for contentment? Are you finding contentment? It can be yours. It needs to be yours. Let me close with this question for you. In regards to your identity and your choices. Do your choices determine your identity, or does your identity determine your choices? Do your choices determine your identity? Do your choices determine who you are, or does who you are in Christ 
determine your choices. And how you answer that question will determine how close you are to finding the contentment you long for. Now, what I said is a lot this morning. And I would recommend that you go on the church website and just click resources or sermons, whatever it says there, and listen again, and listen again, and listen carefully. You'll be surprised as to how much you missed this morning. These are complex ideas, and I would recommend you listen again.